0: Good morning, everyone. Thanks for uh, coming to our session this morning. We're uh, going to be talking about getting your organization ready for a large-scale migration to AWS. I'm Mario Thomas, and I'm the EMEA Migrations Practice Manager uh, for AWS Professional Services. And uh, today, Greg Cope from the uh, Financial Times is going to join me to talk about how the Financial Times uh, built their business case uh, for the move to, to AWS. We've still got a few people coming in, so uh, we'll give them just a minute or so for the doors to close, and then we'll, we'll get cracking. Just wait for the signal from the back. Okay. So I'm just gonna tell you what to expect from this session. So we we are uh, gonna talk to you today about large-scale migrations and and really what we mean by when we talk about a large-scale migration. We're also gonna cover off why would you migrate, what you should consider before migrating, and whether or not you're ready for migration. We'll also look at organization maturity as well and whether or not the organization is ready to get going on a a migration. Greg's then going to come up on stage and talk about the Financial Times' journey to the cloud. And then I'm going to come back up and talk about how we prepare a business case typically for a customer who's migrating to AWS. So what do we mean when we talk about a large-scale migration? We see large scale migrations of all sizes, so everything from 500 servers to 60,000 servers to 100,000 servers, we really have a really wide range of of customer um, case studies uh, that we're now working actively with uh, to migrate into AWS. And we talk about application workloads as being uh, really the constituent parts of an an application needed to make it available to end users. So we talk about things like data centers and uh, the uh, servers, software, people, the third parties. And when we're building a business case, we really want to talk about all of those things to establish what the cost base is going to be. But why would you migrate? Well, I'm assuming that because you're in this session today at reInvent 2016, Some of you will probably want to be migrating uh, reasonably sized workloads to to AWS. But actually we need to ask ourselves, why would we migrate? And really we see a wide range of examples when we're out on the road with our customers in the professional services scene. First one we tend to come across is that there's been an organizational change in leadership or ownership of the organization or even strategy. So we're working with an organization at the moment who is is really moving on from its parent company in the UK and they're gonna set up a shop in South Africa. But actually, they're not going to be able to easily find data center facilities there or build a data center of their own. So what they're actually going to do is migrate into our European data centers. So organizational change and strategy can can really impact where and when you, you, uh, you, you put your workloads. There's potentially the introduction of a new compliance regime. So maybe you now need to be PCI certified. You're starting to take credit cards, for example, for the first time. That's another reason why you might need to migrate workloads ongoing service issues, so you might not be able to keep your workloads up and running uh, and serving your customers. You need to have some extra um, services from AWS to uh, to start a migration. And your customer base is growing and becoming more geographically dispersed. It's quite expensive though to build data centers in new regions. With AWS you can get in there and get a, a new region spun up and tested and then fail fast and close it down or succeed fast and keep it running very, very easily. The Internet brings with it lots of new vectors for attack on your organization. With the cloud, you can very, very quickly stay ahead of the curve when it comes to security. Another reason we find our customers moving to us. Also there's the maintenance of technology debt. We see a lot of technology debt being maintained by customers who are dealing with 20, 30, 40 years worth of applications that they're maintaining, and they're starting to reach a point where they're not able to keep those applications running any longer and need to migrate off those services. IT resources not there to be able to maintain competitive advantage, so new people coming in to the market and taking market share away from the organization. The agility that disruptors have over traditional organizations who haven't yet migrated to the cloud uh, is, is staggering. So what we're tending to find is that organisations need that agility to come into their own into their into their own teams. And other reasons we, get, we find it is that customers say to us they can't grow their business because IT can't keep pace with the growth of the organization. And finally, we don't innovate. We're not creating new things. We're not creating new functionality and new reasons for our customers to stay with us. So this may sound familiar, but it's also quite negative. It's, it's what we can't do. Well, what, what can we do? You know, what are the benefits of, of migrating uh, to AWS? Well, first of all, you, you pay for what you need, and you pay no more. And you can reduce CapEx and OpEx. So it isn't just a case of saying, we'll move our capital expenditure to just operating expenditure. We can actually see reductions in both types of expenditure. We can improve productivity. So our developers can do things faster than they've ever been able to do before. We can improve security. That's another great benefit of of the cloud. And we can enter new markets and fail fast, as I said on the previous slide. There's also cost avoidance. If you have a pending data center refresh coming up where you need to, I don't know, spend half a million pounds on a, on a new set of servers, you can avoid that completely and move into uh, the, the AWS uh, cloud uh, and avoid that cost. And then operational resilience. You can spin up additional areas, you can make your applications scalable, and you can uh, put in things like elastic load balancers to make your applications much more uh, resilient to failures. And that's very, very easy to, to, to bring in uh, to, to your organization also. And finally, uh, business agility. You're able to uh, be more agile as an organization. But how do we get here? You know, why are we in this situation where we're maintaining technology debt and we're not progressing uh, as an organization to actually innovating? Well, there's probably a date where uh, we can pinpoint it. There was a loss of innovation, and it was Friday the 18th of January, 1985. Okay? Does anybody know what the date was? Uh, it was this. Y2K. So organizations suddenly found themselves having to address a major issue in their existing technology stacks, which was the Y2K bug. And unfortunately, the dot-com boom came along at exactly the same time as all that stuff was getting fixed around 1995 to 2000. So we found ourselves in a position where organizations were spinning up new media divisions and running ahead with themselves and creating all this new innovation and new functionality. And IT were left dealing with the Y2K problem. We were maintaining technical debt. So we were just fixing stuff to keep it working and keep the organizations running. And then the cloud happened. And actually, we started to build up um, use of the cloud. But actually, it was the innovators and the disruptors that came to the cloud first. They were running in and trying new things ahead of us as organizations. But what we've seen in the last five years is organizations have started to return as an IT innovator and are now starting to use the cloud much more freely than they ever have done. And they're addressing technical debt. They're actually saying, well, you know, we've got all this technical debt. If we migrate our way to the cloud, we'll be able to address a lot of that technical debt on the journey in. And that is how we get to the need to migrate. So what migration considerations are we finding with our customers? Well, we're finding a number of areas that we want customers to focus on when we're meeting with them in in our professional services um, activities with them. The first one is, do they know what they want to move and by when? And, And how are they going to move it? So they have buy-in of the business. So is there an executive sponsor and a clear business case for actually driving that move to the cloud? Have you got cloud-ready people in the organization? Now, many organizations do have a lot of shadow IT going on. They may be using um, AWS already. And they may have some experience. But most enterprise organizations are not cloud-ready, typically. Do you know what cloud security posture you're going to take? It's very different to what you'll do on-premise or in your existing data centers. And do you know how cloud is going to impact your people? People are going to be doing things much more smartly than they ever have before. So they will be using our higher-level services like RDS, and they won't be needing to worry about backing up and and worrying about failover because the services, the high-level services, will do it for them. How will cloud affect your customers? Is your your customer base going to be more able to interact with you because of the move to cloud? And have you got the resources for the migration? So these are all migration considerations that we typically see um, our customers uh, meet. Then in terms of readiness, we want to ask ourselves, is the organization actually ready? You know, what do we mean by ready? You know, how do I know what workloads I actually have? Many CMDB databases we tend to find are not as up to date as they ought to be to allow us to evaluate what an estate looks like prior to migration to AWS. Which workloads should I move and in what order? So there will be lots of dependencies with workloads and we tend to find that um, getting a, an accurate map of how those workloads are going to move is, is a fairly difficult piece of work. How much is it going to cost me to migrate? You know, it's not just a case of running a TCO analysis and saying, actually, we think that's going to be the cost on an ongoing basis. We need to understand all the, all the indirect costs as well that sit around those workloads. And how long is the migration going to take? You know, we, we have a, a period of time, we might have a data center closure coming up that we need to close down in three or four months. Are we going to, be to get a mass migration underway in that period of time? What impact will there be on the people and partners that we currently work with? You know, how's our managed service organization gonna change? How's our contractual relationship gonna change with that organization? And how much will I save by migrating? You know, what's the true um, cost saving that I'm gonna see? And will there be any other changes in the economics of what we're doing? And what about the intangible business benefits? Are we gonna suddenly become more agile? Are we going to be able to get to market quicker? These are things that we need to try and understand that you're measuring now, and if you're not, we need to put the frameworks in place to allow you to start to measure them on the other side. Then we ask ourselves how mature the organization is, and we use the Cloud Adoption Framework, the AWS Cloud Adoption Framework, to really measure organizational maturity. We have seven perspectives here, and we sit with our customers, and we go through the various parts of our perspectives to measure their current as-is position. So, for example, we might look at the value um, benefits of the organization, so, uh, or the role and job descriptions that people have, or the SLA and OLA management. You know, on, on, on-prem, it might take you eight weeks to put a server in place. We don't want it to be eight weeks when you move to the cloud. So we need to understand how OLA and, and, and SLA is going to change as a result of um, your organization making this jump. So the Cloud Adoption Framework does an as-is assessment, and it also does a, a 2B assessment. So where do you want to be as an organization in terms of your maturity levels? And we use those results to identify gaps in the organization maturity for the adoption of cloud and then work with the customer to fill those gaps and address them over a period of time. And we, do, we do that before we commence the migration. It's really important that we get those things dealt with before the customer embarks on moving their workloads to the cloud. So in this first part... I've talked about what we mean by a large scale migration and why you would embark on a migration to the cloud. Also, what do you consider before you embark on that migration and actually determining if you're ready and whether the organization is mature for the cloud. So, what I'll do now is is ask Greg to come up. Greg is the uh, head of platform architecture and security at the Financial Times. He's going to talk about their business case for moving to AWS. Greg. Thank
1: you. Good morning, Vegas. I've been dying to say that. Um, So I'm going to talk to you about um, FT's approach to um, adopting the cloud. Um, What I'm going to cover, a brief introduction, uh, our approach a bit more detail, some of the challenge we've had, and a quick summary at the end. So a little bit about the FT. For those who don't know us, we're an international newspaper. We publish around the world. It's pink if you haven't seen it. Should help you find it at the airport. Um, we've got paid for circulation, about 800,000, uh, 600 journalists in 40 countries. We're 128 years old. Uh, we're probably smaller than you think in terms of organizational size. Uh, we've got 2,500 employees, mostly based in London, although there are uh, many spread around the world. Um, the tech group is about 400 people, again, mostly based in London. And in terms of technical infrastructure, we're about half on prem, half on the cloud at the moment. Uh, using AWS, Google, Heroku, Salesforce, CircleCI, da-da-da-da. I thought I'd put a little Brexit slide in. So for those of you who aren't aware, the UK voted on a certain date in the summer. And that's the pound and the dollar. It's quite painful being in the US if you earn money in pounds. Um, And this... go on, transition work. That's the traffic on our website at the same time period. Um, We had a massive spike that started about 4 a.m. when the results were coming out. Um, But the point of this slide is people come to us for financial analysis, um, and our customers are globally distributed, uh, be it those who buy the newspaper or those who pay for um, access to the website. A little bit about me, head of platform architecture and security, you know that bit. Uh, I've been at the FT quite a while, long enough for some of the mistakes to be mine. I'm AEDS certified, and I'm based in London quite far away. So a bit more about our approach in detail. So for us, it's not always about the money. Um, we were much more focused on the intangible benefits, um, getting speed to market, developer efficiency, things like that. So I actually pulled out, preparing for this slide, I pulled out our business case. Um, and these were the main salient points out of it. It was around speed to market. We called it delivery efficiency and reduce our capex and opex costs. So a bit about speed to market. So modern businesses, you're going to, some of you are going to face an existential threat to your business for various different reasons. Uh, there are some affecting the print industry. Um, or alternatively, you might face a disruptive threat from a startup company. And the FT recognized this quite a while ago because we refer to ourselves as a digital business. Um, and what we wanted to do was to get faster. I've got a slide at the end, but basically it was taking us months to get a new product out. This is going back a few few years. Um, Another important aspect is our delivery efficiency. So time is our most expensive resource, specifically our engineering and developers and operations people who are going to put products out there. There's a direct correlation between how long it tends to get something out and how how much it's going to cost. And what we found is that there was lots of dependencies, lead times, things like that, remedy queues. There was a lot of time that was being spent um, burnt on lots of little different things. I've got some constraint theory at the end. Um, So Jeannie Kim, who's the uh, DevOps Handbook author, uh, tweeted recently that he thought dependencies increased lead times by 500%. Uh, That might be a slight outrageous figure, but I wouldn't say it's that far wrong. And what we were looking for was something that was going to be reliable and self-service for teams to enable them and empower them to get stuff out there quicker. Another thing that we were looking to do was to reduce our capex and opex costs. So the FT was reasonably traditional. We'd rent space from a data centre provider and we'd, every five to seven years, we'd go and buy networking, storage, compute in one big lump. Um, and the finance director much prefers this much smoother opex curve now, because it's much easier for him to plan um, business cases going forwards for the, for the FT as a whole. So some of our acts. Um, So we had this great business case. We thought it's all going to be easy. Um, Fantastic plan. Looked brilliant. Board were happy. However, there's a couple of areas that we thought about but probably didn't spend as much time as we should have done on were upskilling the organization and cost control. Because you want to avoid your cloud adoption looking a bit like that. So you're not going to look that clever. Um, Most techies, me included, think we're like that. Superman, we can learn anything. Simple. Um, But most people overestimate their skills a little bit. Because a lot of this stuff is quite new. So, I mean, this is all less than five, ten years old. Uh, Most techies, if they haven't been involved with with the cloud much, a lot of this stuff is new. Running an OS is quite simple, but it's all the other bits that are new. And it's very much a paradigm shift in what's going on. Um, because you, you can now be very granular about your costs, you can do things very quickly, and there's quite a big shift to how the organization needs to react in that context. So, upskilling the organization there's a couple of different ways you can do it. Um, you can get lots of consultants in, that's probably the quickest way to do it, but it's probably going to be reasonably expensive. You can hire in talent, um, that's probably going to be reasonably quick. Um, still going to be reasonably expensive, and what you'll probably find at the moment, those skills are very much in demand. You can train your staff. This is going to take longer. It's probably going to be a little bit cheaper. Um, One of the issues with this, though, is that you need to get buy-in from the business to enable engineers, managers, whoever needs to go on the training or whoever needs to go on the workshops, to stop doing their day-to-day delivery and to to go and do those bits and pieces. And this also takes time, because you can't just start and go, right, we're going to train 100, 200, people, have it might be. You're not going to do that in a day, in a week, in a month, or in a year. And what we actually did is we went for a hybrid approach where we used some consultants and are doing some, quite a bit of training. Um, we settled on the Amazon Solutions Architect um, certification, not necessarily because we're massive Amazon fanboys, but we are a little bit. Um, but it was more around it offers a good baseline across the whole product set at the moment. So we were looking at something that would, that would work for operations people or developers. And it's basically our benchmark for if you've got that exam, we're quite happy that you, you've got a reasonable grounding in what's going on. So another issue is costs. So um, Jelly Babies, my favorite sweets, I use these for bribery at work. Um, if you're UK, you know what they're not, then that might not translate very well internationally. Um, But basically, using the cloud from a a developer's point of view is brilliant. They've got all the sweeties. They're essentially free from their point of view. They don't have to wait. They've got APIs. They can call all the stuff. Um, And as that happens, hopefully, your adoption goes up. This is a very special slide. We claim to be data driven at the FT. Spent a lot of money on that one. (laughs) Um, But what can happen if you don't quite do this right is your costs can go up significantly. Because what normally happens is you would look to adopt the cloud, you'd look to upskill, you'd look to get people used to it, and then you'll probably think, "Uh uh-oh, hang on a minute, you're spending quite a lot of money. Um, This is a classic story. I've heard it loads of different times. Um, I think Disney are going to make a film on it. Pixar might do quite a good one. Um, And you you then go into the scenario of um, FinOps, so financial operations. So from within the cloud, you can get very, very granular costs by the hour, buy the invocation, if it's lambda or those sorts of services and you can make a very very accurate picture of how much a thing costs to run however for most techies that's a new thing to do most people aren't used to doing that so when I started you buy a server you might not even know how much it cost but you'd go and rack it and put an OS on it and put some apps on it these days you can surface all of those costs so one thing we did is we spent a reasonable amount of time on developing a strategy. So there's there's lots of Amazon resources around this sort of stuff. We looked at the ones that are most appropriate to us, the ones that are going to save us the most amount of money. Um, We set up a dedicated team. So my thanks to them if they're watching this. Um, We encourage people to use the high-level services. We encourage people to switch off their non-production environments. Uh, We're reviewing our operating system costs. And we're using newer instance types. And what we did is we looked at all these particular strategies and we came up with metrics. I'll go through them quickly in a minute. Sorry, reserved instances, forgot that one. So you've got to have a serverless slider at reInvent these days. Um, But basically those are all the serverless things we might be using, be it S3, SNS, CloudWatch, Dynamo, Lambda, API Gateway, SQS, Kinesis, you get the idea. Um, But these are often cheaper than running an instance within um, AWS, because the instances or things that look like instances, be it RDS, tend to be more expensive than the um, serverless alternatives, especially for anything that's got quite a low uh, request volume. So it's not always appropriate, but in many cases it is, especially for smaller organizations who aren't the Googles of this world. So we came up with a metric that we would measure people on in terms of their bill. So it's a percentage of the on-demand cost was the metric that we were trying to drive downwards. Um, switching off non-production. So the FT has lots of bits of its website and other bits of products and things like that. Of all of those bits, there is test, there's integration, there's production, there's some other people might have QA environments. And what, when we looked at our environment, and this actually went into our business case, we assumed that 50% of our environments are not production. And of those environments, 50, they can be off 50% of the time. We, that includes having um, developers and engineers around the world So you can save 25% of your cost by eliminating that waste of the weekend or in the evenings. So again, here our metric was around the number of instance hours we were going to run and the number of hours at the weekend. And actually, it's it's reasonably accurate. Um, Reviewing your OS costs. So again, going back to the point, you can review how much your operating system costs you. And there's probably two factors there. The first one would be the CPU required to run an OS versus another one, and the other factor would be licensing or subscription costs with those OSs. So another thing is that with microservices, 12-factor applications, most applications are less opinionated about their OS these days. Uh, we, you know, it's quite rare to find people custom compiling something that will only work on Solaris. So sort of things like Java or Node, things like that, will work quite happily on most OSs. So again, we then have a metric, I've got some slides at the end, about the number of percentage of instances in the whole estate. the state. Not done that one. Excuse me. So newer instances. So um, one way that AWS introduces lower costs is by bringing in newer instances that tend to be much cheaper than the previous ones. So on the whole, about 25% cheaper. Uh, there's some examples, but an M1... XL versus an M4, 26% difference in price. So here you're asking teams to rotate their older instances. So this is something that people need to do on a yearly basis, let's say, as new things come out, and ask them to move off the older instances. The metric there is we don't want any of the old instances around. So reserved instances. Uh, Our estimates is that a one-year reservation, which is the one we tend to go to, we can save 34%. However, what's important about this aspect is that you only, we believe we should only do this after we've done all the other aspects. Because otherwise, you'd be buying the wrong instance, the wrong OS, uh, if you need to buy an instance at all. Uh, here, our metric is the number of reserved instances applied. It's quite a simplistic one. So we've got this cunning plan. It's all going to be perfect. Um, doesn't quite go to plan most of the time. So when you're rolling this, this sort of uh, strategies out, it's not as simple as putting into the business case, we're going to turn uh, non-production environments off, it looks great on paper. But what you need to do is you need to work with teams to show that it's possible. So you need to show them the costs, you need to give them feedback about the costs, uh, you need to evangelise that the whole world's going to stop, not going to stop when they switch stuff off and it'll come back on again when they bring it back on in the morning. Um, another thing we did is we gamed it internally. So we created, what I was referring to those metrics, we created lots of cost dashboards internally. So this one is actually all of FT, and it splits cost by um, the one on the left is system code, which is the, the, the internal service, as we refer to it, and the one on the right is the AWS cost by the AWS service. And what's important here is we're trying to service to people globally how much we spend so they know how much we're paying, how much is leaving the business, and also whether it's going up or down. Um, this is a particular team's view of um, migrating from one OS to another. Um, you can see on the left-hand side, they did some work over a, a week or two and dynamically changed it from one to the other. The piece on the right is showing them how much money is left on the table. And that's quite a powerful thing to do. Because if you can say walk up to an engineer and say, you can save $100 a month if you go and find that instance and move it. They can say, well, that's going to take me an hour, and you can say, well, fine, that's worth $100 a month, because that would be $1,200 a year. If they say it's going to take me three weeks, we can say, well, we can stop talking about that now, move on. Uh, this is another team. So this is actually the web app team. So if anyone uses the FT web app, you hopefully didn't notice that we changed operating systems sometime over the summer, um, just after Brexit, sadly. Um, but that's going from one operating system to another. So basically in summary, a little reminder of our strategy, it was all about speed to market, delivery efficiency, and reducing our costs. One thing that we found is that we're applying some of these techniques, the red line is the number of instances and the blue line is cost. Um, you can't see the scale on the right, but there's fifty percent more instances and we're saving, and we're paying twenty-five percent less, which by my average maths is over sixty percent. Better efficiency. Did we achieve our business case? Sort of. We're getting there. Um, we've been measuring how long it takes us to release an application. Uh, for those who can't see it, there's a. Um, the scale on the bottom is in days. It reaches about 120, about three months. These are sort of different things we were doing. This is, you know, racking a server, buying and racking a server and getting it into the data centre would take literally two months. You can see over time we chop that down. And this is what it is today. That's several years ago. Uh, we changed the scale on the graph. I love this graph. So we changed the scale on the graph, and the one on the bottom left is uh, quite a common one. Uh, it's just an example. But it takes most of our engineers less than a few hours to get an FT application live with an FT host name, with a certificate on the website, doing something useful. So quick thanks. Thanks for listening. Thanks to lovely people at the FT who did all this. Uh, there's AWS cost optimization link, which is what our work was based on, and some links some GitHub stuff that we've been doing. Thank you very
0: much. Great. Thanks, Greg. Thank nice. you. So, Greg talked about preparing the business case and, and really getting under the skin of the numbers and getting under the skin of how the business was going to change and measure um, whether or not they were successful uh, in, in delivering um, the business case. So really establishing an effective business case, which is what this session is actually about, um, is, is really uh, one of the key first steps that we take with our customers when we're doing a professional services engagement. We need to understand what the, current, what the customer is currently doing in their on-premise environment or their co-location environment, and, and really what are the things that sit around them uh, that we need to know about before we can come up with a, a, a business case that's going to work. And our approach is really, to, to start with discovery. So we look at collecting key data points to start with. So people costs, their party costs, infrastructure, application migration costs, and any current intangibles the organization is using uh, in their internal communications to the board. So that could be uh, the number of bugs per developer, the number of days it takes to get an application out the door. Um, so any number of, of, of hard-to-measure uh, intangibles. And the goal is to produce a current budget is to actually be able to go back to the business and say, having looked at your key data points, we think that you're currently spending this. And we sit down and discuss that with the customer, and we get the CFO or the finance partner in the organization to look at that current budget and sign off on it. And it's really, really important to achieve that sign-off with the customer before we embark on writing the business case with them for the migration to AWS. Once we've got sign off from the customer, we then embark on writing the case. And that will mean that we will look at the AWS, sorry, the, the, the data points we've collected, um, the operating systems that they're using, um, and we will look at things like their costs for their future state. We will look at comparative budgets, so we will even look at things like using higher level services as a replacement for spinning up an EC2 instance to run Oracle, for example. Um, and we'll also produce a cash flow forecast to say, this is what your business case says you're going to have to put up to, to get the migration underway. And then that's presented back to the board. So we've got um, a fairly nice structure there that takes the customer on a journey that says, this is what we think you're spending, yes or no. And when they say yes, we then crack on with, let's write the business case. And we do that using a number of different um, tools available to us. And, and I'll start off with uh, really what the role of cloud economics is in, in, in all of this. Um, Cloud economics for us, really, is concerned with the cost savings that you can achieve in the cloud, and it tends to focus on tangible benefits like uh, the migration bubble, so how much are we going to pay to get this workload into the cloud, what the total cost of ownership is going to be, and now we talk about total cost of operation, um, because you never own things that are in the cloud, I guess, Um, what cost optimization strategy you're going to employ when you get into the cloud, and what the payback period is going to be for that migration. But we also look at intangible benefits as well. So we will measure the intangibles the customer using. And then we will look at whether those intangibles are still relevant on, on, the, on the other side. So this, this graph, um, I guess, visualizes what I've just said. So the, the, the migration cost at the top, the top right of the graph um, should blue, we've got a blue line first of all, which is current do nothing, um, and that might be a decreasing line. It just depends on the treatment of the existing application workloads within the customer's em- environment. So they might be depreciating at a particular rate. So the blue line could be could be static, could even in- increase depending on uh, on how they've 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 uh, depreciated or even amortised things. Um, The migration cost then, uh, or the migration bubble, uh, sits on the top right. We have TCO. It has a role, but you can see there it has a limited role in the life cycle of of an application moving to the cloud. Um, It really is a snapshot in time. And cost optimization is really there all the time. It's something that's iterative and remains within uh, the the, the approach that you take to to managing your estate in, in AWS. We have some intangible benefits there as well, and of course the payback period. So I'll, I'll start off, you know, this, 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 the role of cloud economics really leads to that development of the cloud business case. It's going to calculate things like the internal rate of return, the net present value, and the return on investment, so that payback period, um, and that, that's quite key but if we look at the, um, the chart we went to earlier that discovery phase after that's complete or, or in, in getting that complete we're going to focus on the migration bubble so we're going to do some application discovery we're going to look at the current costs of applications and the exit costs of applications because applications have exit costs we're then going to look at what the tco of lifting and shifting and and even uh, upscaling of the applications to take advantage of higher level services is going to look like and we will recalculate a number of tco models for the customer to give them different scenarios Then we look at cost optimization and and 11 key principles of cost optimization and apply those principles to the TCO models we've created. And that's how we get to that current budget. So we're collecting this data as we go along. And then we do that confirmation piece with the customer as well. So let's look at migration costs to start with, um, the migration bubble. So all migrations have a cost. Um, even small migrations of, of at least one cent, um, and usually a lot more, and the investment needed really to, to um, achieve the migration is, is, uh, is, is called the migration bubble and We typically include in that consultancy, di- uh, discovery and planning the proof of concept activities we 're going to do with the customer, potential software licensing changes, staff readiness and training so there 's a whole raft of different um, elements that make up the total cost of migration and Running duplicate environments, there's going to be, at some point, a a duplicate environment running. Potential lease penalties and changes in staff structures, uh, redeployment, um, external consultancy resources that you might need as well. But that migration bubble can be controlled. Migration planning is going to help with that. But actually, when when we do migration planning, we try to optimize either for cost, speed, or risk. So if we want to do it fast we're potentially going to increase our risk and we're going to increase our cost. If we want to do it cheap, we're potentially going to do it um, very, very slowly and we're potentially going to increase our risk. So we want to try and balance all three elements, really, in in calculating a total cost of migration. TCO, total cost of, of, of ownership, is, is really what we've always done. We, we've given you TCO tools to calculate what does this workload cost to run in the cloud. Um, it's a comparative total cost of analysis, um, and it's really only valid for the moment that the migration takes place, because what we want you to immediately start doing is cost optimizing. So that TCO window, as I, as I call it, really is, is, is only going to last for a very short period of time. Also, the TCOs generally don't consider high-level services. So are we going to swap out um, Oracle on EC2 instances for Oracle in RDS? And if we are, what does the TCO now look like? So we need to rerun these TCO models repetitively until we get the business case that we want to. Uh, you know, TCO isn't a price quote. It's, uh, it's really a forecast of what you're going to use for a very short period of time. And cost optimization is, is something you, know, you, you do continually. Um, you, you're currently paying for what you use. So whether you've got service spun up and you're using them or not, you're still going to be paying for them. And what we actually want is for customers to pay for what they need at the, at the time they need it. And we have um, 11 cost optimization um, things that we, we, we tend to do. So at the sort of simple end of this scale, um, consolidated billing, really, really easy to do, um, having the relevant permissions so people can uh, spin up the, the services they need and they, they have permission to do that tagging of resources, and any untagged resources should be turned off and eventually um, terminated, um, and turning off vital resources, which Greg covered in his, in his presentation. And then the sort of stimulating end of the cost optimization um, complexity scale, um, instance right-sizing. So picking the right instances for your application workload when you move it into the, to, to AWS. And that's going to come from performance data that we collect um, in, in, in looking at the applications. Um, looking at different storage options and looking at different purchasing options so the Financial Times look at, obviously, um, RIs, so reserved instances. And then at the far end, uh, the more stretching end of, of the scale, um, OS licensing, so potentially switching to Amazon Linux from other flavors uh, where you have support uh, built into to that model, offloading your architecture to CloudFront, uh, designing for elasticity and using those higher level services. These, these are all ways of cost optimizing and things that you should be doing continually to keep driving those numbers down. We want you to spend less. And then Looking at the intangible benefits of, of, of the cloud, um, cost savings really associated with, um, with moving to the cloud are not the only thing you want to measure in an organization. We want to look at, at the impact on the business and the bottom line of the organization. So the intangible benefits are really you know, moving away from talking about cash and, and really talking about things like agility, uh, the ability to enter new markets, the reduction in bugs that we, we are now putting out in our, in our code. the the product quality, um, and the improved coding practices. So intangible benefits really are about measuring things that generally are quite difficult to measure. And they will depend on your business. There are a number of KPIs that you can use for intangible benefits, but they will absolutely depend on your organization and the industry that you're in. And we want to select KPIs that we can measure against the other people that are doing what we do you may already be measuring them. Part of our discovery process is to understand what's important to your board in terms of the intangible benefits of the of the, of the cloud. And you may already be reporting performance against them as well. So that's a sort of whirlwind tour of, of the cloud economics points of, of building the business case. We then move on to building out the, the data discovery piece with the customer. And I'll start by saying, you know, the amount of effort you put in and the number of data points you put in will drive um, how the, um, the business case is going is to derive. So what we like, you're familiar with the, with the uh, magic quadrant here. So you can see a low effort, uh, low data point business case is going to be pretty unusable. Um, a high effort, but few data point business case is going to lead to an inaccurate business case. It's going to be nothing. Um, and low effort, many data points is difficult to build a compelling business case with actionable um, outcomes. So we want you to actually put high effort in and provide lots and lots of data points. Um, and that's going to lead to a high level um, and, and high quality business case. So that's kind of where we want everybody to be. Um, And the reason I put this slide up first is because collecting this data is generally really, really difficult. There isn't a central repository of knowledge in organizations where they can just look up this stuff. They have to go off and find it. So let's look at the different data points that we want to collect. So we have people, obviously, third-party, infrastructure, application, and, of course, migration costs. And each of these areas has a whole slew of data points that we need to collect in order to be able to create an accurate business case. So with people costs, first of all, Direct people costs: recruitment, retention, retirement, uh, replacement, um, and also activity costs. What are the people doing now in our organization that they're going to be able to do differently in the cloud? Do we need to set up replication on a MySQL database anymore, or can we just simply switch to using RDS? That's going to significantly affect somebody's workload in the organization. So understanding time and motion is key to the input to the business case, as is understanding development and training costs as well. Also, contractual, uh, contractor costs, so costs per hour, per day, they will also need to be um, understood. With third parties, we also want to look at um, what the fixed costs are. So an MSO might be managing our infrastructure. What does that look like when we move to the cloud? Is the MSO going to be doing less work? Um, are change requests and innovations something that they're no longer going to need to do in the way they've been doing them? And what variation penalties are there in the contracts that we have with these people? Again, we need to factor all of that into the business case that we're writing. And what does the software license landscape look like? What do we currently have in software licenses? And what can we take to the cloud with us? Or what are we going to use from the cloud um, when we get there? So understanding the software license landscape is is really, really key. And obviously those time and motion activities apply equally to the third parties. Then we move on to infrastructure. So we start to look at things like data center costs, uh, lease term remaining, uh, lease termination penalties, cost of reducing that footprint. Lease um, lines, you know, all, all of these sort of uh, numbers that make up a business case, um, are, we need to get under the skin of these. And you can see now the data points are looking quite rich. Um, there's a lot of them um, that we need to collect. Uh, we also need to look at any upcoming refreshes. So, are you going to spend money on replacing hardware? Are you going to look at existing end of life plans? Do they need to be amended because we're going to move to the cloud? Um, what does time on CapEx look like? You know, how much more depreciation do we have to run before actually it makes sense to move that asset to the cloud? And then application costs. We need to then discover what we've got running in the applications themselves. So, you know, the number of application workloads, how those map to the underlying hardware that we've got in the infrastructure. What about the dependencies? So can we move applications in a particular way to make sure we we capture dependent applications and move them together? What does the OS licensing look like? Um, And understanding um, upcoming application changes that might be planned that now could be delayed because we're moving to the cloud. So we have a, a concept in AWS of, of the six R's, and, and you may be familiar with it. So we have a, um, a, a retain, so the application's going to stay where it is. We're not going to migrate to the cloud. We can retire the application. So uh, we tend to find actually about 10% of, of application workloads are, retire, are retireable. Uh, they're not being used by anybody, which is amazing. Um, Rehosting, so that's a simple lift and shift. I say simple, but it's literally lift and shift the application with minimal changes, so so configuration changes, maybe, um, to point at a different database endpoint, and replatforming, which is a lift and shift plus some high-level services usage, so maybe moving from Oracle to RDS. Refactoring is actually rewriting the application to take advantage of the cloud. And then re-architecting is potentially up-versioning or, or moving potentially to a SaaS model. Um, so a number of different um, routes forward for the applications. And we like to package our applications into, that, into one of those groups to decide what we're going to do. Um, but the, the problem with, with, with that is that you know, if we take 75% of our workloads and throw them into the cloud, the remaining 25% suddenly have a different economic profile it might still be that we have to pay for the same square footage in the data center and the same costs still apply in the data center for those 25% of applications, so we're not going to realize the cost benefits that we thought we would. So we need to capture that in the business case as well. Then we have some migration costs. We need to think about how we're going to get these applications moved from where they are to where they're going. So planning and design, development effort, testing effort, Acceptance effort, deployment effort, these are all man hours that we need to get um, really under the skin of very, very quickly. And what does the landing zone look like in, on the other side? You know, how are we going to make our network uh, work for us in the way it has done, uh, or better than it has done all along? What does licensing look like? What about data migration? If the applications have to stay live, how are we going to migrate data? When is cut over? And how are we going to roll back if it all goes wrong? So these are all the migration considerations that we also factor into the underlying business case. And then finally, the migration velocity. What speed can we defrag that data center? Can we get those servers out and get them into the cloud? And the problem we find is that we have to look at the dependencies. We need to know what applications depend on what other applications and underlying hardware. And that can usually be quite messy. CMDBs are very rarely kept as up-to-date as we would like them to be. So that a lot of work takes place in understanding what the migration velocity is going to look like. So all of that data collection, and it's... Pretty intensive. It can take several weeks to to get all of that together and lead us to um, a current budget. And we produce the current budget with planned capital expenditure points in there, uh, monthly operations budget, depreciation, amortization, and the overall budget review. And we sit with the CFO or the finance partner in the organization, and we get sign-off on the budget. That's really, really key. So if you're a partner in the room um, and and you're doing this with customers, then it's really, really important um, to make sure that you you say, that's the line in the sand. That's how we're going to um, deliver this this budget to to the organization and compare uh, to these numbers. We then set about, with all of that information, all that data, writing the business case. So reviewing the current budget, reviewing all data points, license review, all of the things we talked about earlier, we now roll into um, a a business case that we we share with the customer. And we will also include in that total cost of migration modeling. So we will look at, you know, will we use high-level services? Will we simply do a lift and shift? Um, we would look at total cost of operation modeling, so what Do the different varying TCOs look like, what cost Optimization can we do on the journey in, so if we've got Performance data from the orchestration tool in the Customer's existing environment, what does that tell us About right sizing on the journey into AWS to keep those Costs as low as possible, so we're doing some cost of Optimization before we even get started, and then we look at What cost of optimization is going to take place after the Fact. We produce an executive summary, and of course we provide Backing data to the customer, and That's how we get to getting the business case uh, evaluated for the customer. Um, So business case is finalized, and we do some models and assumptions in the business case and test those with the customer against the original budget, and we update that with any changes, and we finalize that business case and present to the board. And that's our typical approach to to getting a business case um, out of the door. And hopefully it leads to a business case that gets approved and a migration that uh, that can get moving. So, I'll recap. We covered off at the start what we mean by a large-scale migration, uh, why you'd embark on a large-scale migration, and what to consider before you embark on, on that uh, migration. We wanted to check that you were ready uh, for the migration, that your organizational maturity is there, and how you build the business case. We'll do some questions a bit later, uh, but thank you for your attention. Uh, Greg and I have a favor to ask, so... Um, we're going to do a selfie. <laughs> We've decided we'd like to just get a selfie from the room, please. Um, Ellen's style. We're trying to beat that. And, um, so if you just all wave, please, from the front. <laughs> Don't wave. <wait. laughs> I'll turn this the right way see around. So you're
1: not waving. way Your hands are waving.
0: There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everyone.